Welcome, welcome you all to RUF. Thanks for braving the, uh, the elements tonight in that weird, horrible... Can you all hear me? Hello? Yeah, there it is. Thanks for braving the elements tonight and that weird, uh, terrible, like, freezing rain outside. Uh, I saw people running in that at, like, 6.30 tonight. Who would do that to themselves? <laughs> um, but it is good to see you all. Uh, it's good to be here tonight. Um, if I haven't met you, I would love to meet you at some point. Um, love to serve you in any way that I can. That's really what I'm here to do. That's what REF is here to do, is to serve, to care for the people um, that are here at UNC. Um, I was reading a book recently by a man named Jerry Sitzer, and he's a Christian college professor, teaches religion um, at a, a Christian seminary somewhere. And in the book... It's called A Grace Disguised. He was reflecting on the death of his wife and his two children and his mother, really right in front of his eyes. Um, he'd been, they'd been driving home one night from kind of a festival out in the country. They'd been pretty far away from kind of civilization and the lights of that. And they'd been driving, and he hadn't had anything to drink that night, but a drunk driver crossed the, the median and hit them dead on. And I... Uh, killed his wife and two of his children, two of his children survived, and his mother, and they all kind of died, some of them died right then, but his mother died in his arms, really, because uh, the paramedics were so far away. And in the aftermath of this tragedy, Sitzer is kind of reflecting on how he wrestled as a Christian man, as a, as a professor of religion, somebody who'd read a lot of books, who'd been with a lot of people in very hard circumstances, but he wrestled with the problem of how can a good God allow such evil and suffering and tragedy to happen? Where was God's justice? Where was his love? Sitzer writes, My loss made God seem terrifying and inscrutable. For a long time I saw his sovereignty as a towering cliff in winter. Icy, cold, windswept. I stood in the misery at the base of this cliff and looked up at it, forbidding, unscalable wall. And I felt overwhelmed and intimidated and crushed by its hugeness. There was nothing inviting or comforting about it. It loomed over me, completely oblivious to my presence and to my pain. It defied climbing. It mocked my puniness. I yelled at God to acknowledge my suffering and take responsibility for it. But all I heard was the lonely echo of my own voice. You know, some of us here have suffered a lot. And some of us here have hurt a lot. Some of us here are probably hurting right now. And a lot of times we can get caught between these kind of two questions. Where is God when I experience suffering and evil in the world? And how can a loving God also be kind of a God of wrath? How can a God who's just and loving, how can he have wrath? And the crucifixion is the Bible's answer to both of those questions. Because really it's the answer to the brokenness and the misery of the sin in the world. And throughout Mark's gospel, there have been images of Jesus' work that point to something beyond themselves. We're not reading the Bible allegorically here, but the blind are healed, and they're not just healed of their physical blindness, but they're healed of a spiritual blindness. People who are hungry are fed and they are satisfied, but they don't just receive loaves and fish. They're satisfied in their souls, too. These are real events that point to a deeper spiritual reality and that accomplish something not just physically but spiritually as well in the world. Um, and 
Part of the trouble of going through an entire book of the Bible in a semester is that you have to skip forward a lot. So last week we're in Mark 10, here we're in Mark 15. We're at the crucifixion. And Mark gives us a lot of pictures here that do something similar to what he's done with uh, the bread and the fish and the blind men. That These pictures that he shows us here at the crucifixion, they point to the brokenness, to the shame, to the suffering of Jesus. Mark has given us images that show just how evil this act is, how broken the world is. But this is not just about a man dying on the cross. This is about the man, the God-man dying on the cross. This is God himself dying in shame. This is God's clothes being gambled away so that he's naked and bleeding. These are the leaders of the temple, the people who should have been the closest to God, the people who are the most loving towards their neighbors. These are them mocking him and laughing at him in the midst of unimaginable agony. The very people who should care the most, should mourn the most over the brokenness in the world, they have the hearts that are most hardened towards a man on a cross. See, the crucifixion is a picture of the horror of the evil in the world. And Jesus is a victim of oppression and injustice. He's given a sham trial. That's more than a tragedy. It's a picture that he's willingly painted for us of evil and what it deserves at God's hand, which is judgment. Because he's so clearly an innocent, though, who's willing to go to the cross, it's also a picture of God's mercy here. Jesus doesn't deserve to go to the cross. He goes to it for others. This is a picture, yes, but like his healing, it accomplishes something real on a deeper spiritual level. And we all struggle with the reality of sin and evil and suffering in the world. And the cross is the answer to both those things. So tonight we're going to keep this picture simple and we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about the problem that requires the cross and we're going to talk about the solution that the cross answers. The problem that requires the cross, the solution the cross answers. So if you would, read with me Mark 22 through 39 um, and then we'll kind of get started here. And they brought him, that's Jesus, to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days... Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Let me pray for us. Father, there is so much brokenness in the world. And Lord, it's not just out there. 
on the news, in other countries, down the street. Lord, it's inside of us. And it hurts us. We feel the misery of the sin in this world. We feel the misery of the sin in our heart. But God, your crucifixion is the promise to us that we are not alone in that misery. Your incarnation is the promise that you have done something about the brokenness of the world. Lord, I pray that you would be with us tonight in your power, in your presence, in your beauty. Lord, that you would suffer with us. God, that you have died for us. Lord, that you would call us to yourself and you would do something about the misery in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would heal us. You would heal us through your own wounds. Your sins and we pray. Amen. Uh, I can remember being a little kid, like five, maybe six years old, and I'm a child of the 90s, or 80s, and I can remember seeing Ronald Reagan on TV. This is like an early, early TV memory for me. Uh, and he was talking about the collapse of the Soviet Union. And what a lot of people don't know is that, like, as the Soviet Union fell in the late 80s, the government basically just went totally broke. I mean, it had no money. And the Soviet economy fell apart. And one of the results of that collapse is that the Soviets just opened up their jails and they just let everybody go. I mean, everybody. And in the midst of this mass release of prisoners, there was an old man in his mid-70s by the name of Andre Stamos. Um, and the Soviets basically looked at him and they looked at all the other people and said, you know, we don't have money to pay our guards. We don't have money to buy you food. Like, just, just go. Get out of here. But Andre Stamos... Uh, He'd been broken by the Soviet prison system. He was 70 years old. He'd been a Hungarian soldier in World War II. And he'd been captured by the Soviets in his 20s. And he'd really spent the, the next 50 years of his life in solitary confinement. And when the Soviets let him out, he was mostly insane. Uh, and they called a Hungarian psychologist to assess him. They're like, we don't know if we want this guy on the streets. What should we do with him? And the psychologist made an assessment of him and they told him, uh, yeah, he's insane, he's a little insane, uh, but if they would let him, the psychologist would take him back to Hungary, and they would kind of care for him for the rest of his life, they would make sure he had some sort of dignity here at the end, the Soviets didn't have any money, so they agreed to that, and they packed Andre up to go, and one of his first requests as a free man, after 50 years of solitary, was could he have a mirror? He hadn't seen his face in over half a century. And so they pass Andre a mirror, and as he receives it, he takes one look at it, and he buries his face in his hands, and he weeps. He'd been so broken by prison that he could hardly stand to see the sight of himself. The lines in his face, his teeth were gone, his hair was disheveled. He'd come in a young man who was leaving an old man. And Jesus' death holds up a mirror to the brokenness of us and to the world, that to wrap your head around how broken the world is, how broken we are, you really have to wrap your head around the entire purpose of Jesus' mission in Mark's gospel. Everything's been leading up to this moment. Back when we started this series in Mark chapter 1, you see Jesus getting baptized, identifying with his people, putting on their story. And as Mark's gospel unfolds, Jesus has continually told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die on a cross. Why is he doing that? Because he must receive the end of his people's story. He must receive the end of what they deserve. But he wants to take that on himself. He wants to take on their evil. He wants to take on their sins. Those things are going to fall upon him so they don't fall on his people. 
As it does so, it doesn't just assuage God's wrath against sin, but it really shows us what our sins deserve. It holds up a mirror to us, to our own brokenness. And there's not really a modern equivalent for us of what, what it is to die on a cross. But dying on a cross in the ancient world was the absolute worst death that somebody could die. There's not really a modern equivalent to kind of conjure up the shame and the terror of death on a cross. But to be beaten within an inch of your life, forced to carry the piece of wood that you're going to be nailed to, while people yell at you and scream at you and throw rocks at you, as you go through the city streets, forced to go outside of the city to where they throw the garbage, you're stripped naked, you're nailed to that piece of wood, where you're hoisted up in front of all these people who are going to throw more rocks at you and spit on you and curse you in your public nakedness while you slowly die. That combines the worst physical pain with the worst possible public shame. And Jesus, the picture we have of Jesus here that Mark paints for us, is really is the ultimate victim. What's so incredible about this is that he allows himself to go to the cross. He willingly enters into that victimhood. He can do miracles, but he does nothing to stop his arrest. Before his incarnation, he's clothed in glory. Now he's naked, nailed to a piece of wood, watching the people who did that to him throw dice to see who gets his clothes. That's victimhood. That's suffering. And when you look at the brokenness of the world, at poverty, at sex trafficking, at divorce, at depression, murder, at the fact that I can generally go most of my life and not really care that any of those things are happening, you have to ask, where is God? And his answer here and in the Gospels is it's on a cross. That in this life, there really is not a a specific answer to our individual heartbreak. But a big part of the gospel message is that when he could have remained invulnerable to evil, God made himself absolutely vulnerable. He left his power, he left his privilege, he left his safety, and he became, in Paul's words, nothing. Which is what it absolutely feels like to be a victim. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the same cry of the abused, and the forgotten, and the downtrodden, and the homeless. Even in his last cry, nobody understands Jesus' pain. It sounds like he's crying out to Elijah. No, he's crying out to God. And you don't understand. And that is exactly what it feels like for some of you to ask the people around you for help. And for them to completely misunderstand you when you cried out. I am so depressed right now. Well, you don't look sad. Or everybody gets sad sometimes. Nobody gets it sometimes. God gets it here. The world is an incredibly tragic place, just both for us individually and corporately. And I don't just mean that, I don't say this to denigrate them, but like there are millions of children who live in slums and don't have shoes to protect their feet from nails and from glass. Like that's a broken part of the world. But there's first world misery too, isn't there? The fact that we can literally have Hundreds of Facebook friends, but can never escape this abiding sense that I am lonely, and I have tried, and I have tried, but there doesn't seem to be anything that I can do to make myself feel connected to other people. Or because of sexual sin in my life, I know that I treat myself and other people as though we were just a collection of body parts to be used, rather than as just a a full human being with a heart and a will that feels the hard sandpaper scrape of the world, just like I do. But I can't stop myself. That's misery. That's sin. That's loneliness and brokenness. 
On the cross, God takes on the pain and the suffering of the world. And when you suffer, you need to know that you are not alone in that. That God understands your pain. Understands it because of His wrath. What do I mean by that? What do I mean that He understands it by His wrath? Pastor Tim Keller from New York is very helpful here, like he is in a lot of things. And he says this. He says that to have a God that loves you, you also have to have a God of wrath and justice. And think about this. People who love get angry not in spite of their love, but because of it. Like the more that you love the people in your life, the angrier you get when they destroy themselves and one another. Have you ever noticed that? If you see people destroying themselves, you get mad at them out of love. And your sense of justice and love are not in opposition to one another, but they run parallel to each other. They're activated together. If you don't care about people, if you don't care about how broken the world is, then it's because you don't love. And when we think about God's wrath, we have to think of God's justice. And that's right. People who care about justice get mad when they see injustice, don't they? I mean, that's part of what like Hunger Lunch is about. It's part of what the dance marathon is about. The people saw injustice and they got mad about it, so they wanted to do something about it. And God's not any different. We shouldn't expect anything less from a good God. But have you ever thought about God's wrath at evil, all evil, ours included, as a function of his love? Have you ever been driving down the road and seen that bumper sticker, if you're not angry, then you aren't paying attention? What if you had the capacity to love the world and the people in it so much more than you do now? What if your capacity to love was so great that when people saw your love or thought about your love, they would say, your love is like the ocean. Your love is so deep, so vast, I could never get to the other side of it. Your love is so deep, I could never get to the bottom of it. That would be a lot of love for the world. But what if also at the same time as you had that ocean of love, what if you could see and hear all the mean thoughts the terrible intentions, the cruelty, the hatred, the jealousy, the war, the rape, the pettiness, the injustice, the terrible intentions, the murder, the thievery of the entire world at all times and all places throughout history. Do you think he'd be mad? If you weren't, then it's because you had no love. That's what God's wrath is about. And the beauty of the gospel is that here on the cross... God could crush us, but He doesn't. If if He were mean, then we would know it. Wouldn't we? We would know it deep in our bones. But God is both absolutely loving and absolutely just, and there's no greater demonstration of that love and justice than God putting Himself on a cross so that you don't have to be there. Do you realize how broken we must be for Him to do that? Do you realize how loving He must be for him to do that. If you want to understand Christianity's response to the brokenness and the suffering of the world, the first thing you have to understand is that God breaks himself in order to deal with how messed up we are and how hurt we are. The darkness that happens here in the, in the, from the sixth to ninth hour is because God's wrath is falling full like a tidal wave upon Jesus. Notice that his cry is not one of the pain of being nailed to a piece of wood and hoisted up in front of a crowd, even though that hurts. But he weeps because he's forsaken by God. He weeps because he absorbs the wrath of God like a sponge. Because that is what it means for him to love us. 
And our problem is that we don't see our need of him or of the cross. We think our need is to be comfortable or more moral or more organized. But let me suggest this to you. That if God is willing to become a man and die on a cross for you, to absorb the punishment that you deserve, then let me suggest that he's given to you the answer to the question of, what is my greatest need? And we run after comfort and we come up with emptiness. And sometimes we can run after morality, being the most moral person in the room. But we find we're never good enough. Or that in our do-gooding, we feel really arrogant. And that pushes people away from us. We live our lives on a pedestal. You know, you don't need those things as much as you need the cross. God's kindness makes us kind. God's love makes us loving. His joy in spite comes in spite of comfort. But what you first need to know is that the cross is your greatest need. Let's look at verses 38 and 39 here real quick. We'll talk about what is it the cross satisfies for us. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Y'all, Mark has given us lots of pictures here of Jesus' crucifixion. People are gambling for his clothes. People are putting wine on a reed and trying to hand it off to him. Why does Mark mention here a curtain in the temple? Or why is it important that this man, a Roman centurion, realize that he is the Son of God? The temple was where God's people went to go worship, and it's divided into sections, with each section getting progressively more restrictive in terms of who could enter. The most restrictive part of the temple was called the Holy of Holies. And this place was the closest point of earthly contact to God. To be in it meant that you were in the presence of God in a way that you did not normally experience. It was the most intimate part of the temple, the most sacred part of the temple. But only the high priest could go in there, and then only once a year for a few minutes to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And what divided this place, this intimate, sacred, holy of holies, from the rest of the temple was the thick, tall curtain. And no one crossed that, no one looked beyond that, no one came near that. The curtain was as far as you got. And for that curtain to tear at the moment of Jesus' death means that God has opened up his most intimate, sacred parts for everyone. For the very first person to recognize who Jesus is, to be one of the pagan soldiers who murdered him, means that the way into that temple is open for everybody. And it doesn't matter how bad you've been, how much shame you carry about those things that you've done or not done. For you to look at Jesus, Jesus and to say, truly this man was the Son of God. I need him. I can't stand before God and other people without him standing in front of me. I can't approach the darkness of my life or the world without being covered by his sacrifice. And the knowledge that he's gone before me into that darkness. So he understands my hurt and my heartbreak and how guilty I feel at times. How shameful I feel at times. To put your trust in Jesus means that in God's sight, you are as righteous as he is. You're as righteous as God. You're as okay as Jesus. To be reconciled to him means that you are reconciled to God. Because in him, God looks you in the eye and he says... This is my beloved. You, with you I am well pleased. What could you do to add to that? More Bible studies? Becoming a really good evangelist? Being a more moral person? 
Those aren't bad things in themselves, but they don't add at all to God's love for us. Because you are His beloved. And you became that based upon an action that He did two millennia before you were born. So you can't mess that up. It is completely out of your hands. Which is a really good thing. Because we would definitely mess that up if it was in our hands. Can we add to God's work on the cross? No. Even as I'm mad at my parents or I'm in anguish about the fact that I'm struggling with pornography and can't seem to escape, will I ever be more justified by God? No. You will not be more right in God's sight. Will there be a time when I feel body and soul that I am more clean and more set free? Yes, one day. But you will not be more right even then than you are right now. The Apostle Paul, reflecting on Christ's death on the cross, said, He made Him who knew no sin, this perfect, holy, good man, who never said a mean word to anyone, who spoke with authority and was never arrogant, He made Him to become sin for us. Our guilt, our brokenness, our private inner agony, so that we could become the righteousness of God. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. Are you neglecting prayer? Are you feeling cold towards God, towards other people? If your faith is in Christ, you are still the righteousness of God. If you tell them that, they won't read the Bible. If you don't tell them that, you won't read the Bible. Why would you? If the Bible is a book about all the things that I need to do, then of course it's a book about condemnation, because I will never do enough. But if the Bible is a book about God's love for you, then it sets you free. And you'll reach for it. If the cross is what the entire Bible is leading up to and what the whole Bible points back to, then of course you reach for it. If the message of the cross is not just what gets you in, but what keeps you grounded in sanity, then yeah, you'll reach for it. The cross is God's answer to the brokenness of me and the brokenness of the world. It is what reconciles us to God. It is how God reconciles the pain and the brokenness of the world to himself. Jerry Sitzer, that Christian college professor, worked through a lot more stuff as he was thinking about the death of his wife and his kids. And he reflected on this, on this question of pain. And he looked at the cross and he said this. He said, the sovereign God came in Jesus Christ to suffer with us and to suffer for us. He descended deeper into the pit than we will ever know. His sovereignty did not protect God from loss. If anything, it led him to suffer loss for our sake. God is therefore not simply some distant being who controls the world by some mysterious power. God came all the way to us and he lived among us. That icy cliff that seemed so distant and far away. And the cross became a pile of sand at our feet. God doesn't give us an answer to our specific suffering, but He gives us Himself. He gives us Himself to reconcile us to, from our sin. He gives us Himself so that we be reconciled to Him and healed from the brokenness of misery of the world. He gives us Jesus so that we can come into the Holy of Holies, the most intimate and sacred of places. I'll end with this. Uh, when I was a junior... In college, I got an internship with the U.S. Senate. And on the application for that internship, there was a 750-word essay on why you wanted to work in the Senate. And I did not write a 750-word essay. I wrote a 25-word essay. 
because I knew that no matter how good my essay was, the reason I was going to go work for the Senate or had any chance for it was because of my dad. Uh, so <laughs> I wrote my 25-word essay and got in. Uh, <laughs> I went to D.C. and I stayed for the entire summer and didn't pay a dime of my own money uh, for food or lodging, again because of my dad. I worked in Rayburn, one of the Senate office buildings, and I spent most of my days literally just walking around or giving tours to random people that came in the building. Uh, I didn't usually, I didn't have any training for that. They just give me a sheet and I just would like point at things. And sometimes I would literally make stuff up. And like, that was how it worked. <laughs> But the best part about the whole Senate experience was that I had this name badge with my picture on it and the name of the Senator's office that I worked in. And people, like, I don't know, bodyguards, security dudes, would stop me and they would check my credentials and I would go, Ktoosh, and flash that. And they, they couldn't mess with me. I was in the Senate building. I was in the most, one of the most powerful places in the world. So I would be walking around the Senate building giving fake tours and, like, walking around. And... <laughs> And I like I would I literally I saw John McCain and he came through a side door and I said Senator and I shook his hand and he shook my hand because I was in I had the badge skadoosh and I walked by John Kerry in the hall one day and we make eye contact and I give him a head nod and he gives me a head nod too. Uh, I got once accidentally got into an elevator with Ted Kennedy and nobody kicked me out because I was in. It didn't matter that I didn't really belong there or hadn't done anything to get in there, I was in. There was this set of underground electric carts that goes from one side of Capitol Hill to the other side of Capitol Hill. And only, only senators and the people that could work there got to ride those carts. And I rode them every single day. <laughs> I didn't have to have a reason, I just rode it. Uh, <laughs> and the, the best part about it was that tourists had to walk by those carts, and so like... There would be like the 250 pound like grandmother in like the walker. She had to walk. I was riding the cart behind Hillary Clinton while she was going to vote in the Senate. I once awkwardly walked down the hall and made eye contact with a junior senator named Barack Obama. And he, he gave me an awkward eye contact. And it was great. It was an awesome moment. <laughs> I think we shared something there. He probably remembered me. <laughs> Did I work hard to get that Senate internship? No. Did I earn my way in the halls of power? No. Did I have to work to stay there? Not at all. But I was there and I belonged because my father had worked really hard to get me in. And once I was in, nobody could kick me out. Literally, nobody could kick me out. <laughs> and I say that because of this. Are you made clean because you worked hard to be made clean? No. Are you loved because you've loved God so well and He just loves you in return? Absolutely not. Can you make Him love you more than you're already loved in Christ? No. The Father has given you a great gift. He's invited you into His holy of holies, in those intimate, sacred parts of heaven so that you can pray to Him and He will really listen to you. And you are not forgotten in your suffering. And you are not alone in your shame. And when people say things to you that make you feel excluded, when you say stuff to yourself that makes you feel like, God can't love me. God doesn't know me. He doesn't want to be a part of this. Flash that badge, that skadoosh. Jesus Christ has loved me. And he has died for me. And he's brought me into the Holy of Holies. And he has cried out so that I could cry out to God in my own pain and my own suffering. And God would answer me and he would listen to me. 
And he would invite me closer to him rather than me pushing me away. So rest in your heart. Tell people what God has done for you. Thank him. Get on your knees tonight and thank him that he has loved you and he has borne your shame and the sin of the world on his cross. Because he is that good. And he's invited you to himself to do those very things. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you work in our hearts in spite of us. God, that you call us to yourself. Lord, that you give us great privileges, great honor to be your son and your daughter. Lord, that you threw your own son out, that he cried out to you and you did not listen to him so that you could hear our own cries. Lord, if, if we are here tonight and we are struggling to believe that, God, I pray that you would answer our prayers. That, Lord, I don't know where you are. I struggle to believe in you at times. I struggle to trust you with my shame. I struggle to trust you with my hurt. Lord, I pray that as the God who has hurt himself, as the God who has been on a cross for sinners like us, Lord, that you would hear our prayers. Not because of how good we are or what we could do for your kingdom, but Lord, because you are good and you are loving and you have gone to a cross for us. I pray that you make these truths real in our hearts. In your sister's name we pray. Amen.